This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we finish our look at the story of the birth of Jesus, juxtaposing two kings and the kingdoms that they bring. Yeah. We got introduced to uh, Herod in our last story, but we were busy looking at magi and astrology and astronomy and all of that, so we really didn't have time. I wanted to stop us, but we had been stopped enough already, but... Matthew's writing along, and all of a sudden he talks about Herod the Great. And uh, I want to do some work today to try to appreciate that line, because I think we just read over it, like, oh, yeah, Herod, he's the king, he's the one that killed all the babies, blah, 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 blah. There's all kinds of historical context behind when Matthew says, in the days of Herod the Great, or we'll look at Luke, and Luke's going to say, in the days of Caesar Augustus. That sentence carries so much historical context and weight to it that I want to go ahead and take a look at that. But got some notes I'll read today. Keep me tied to my objectives. How about that? See if we can get out of here under 45 minutes this time. Uh, back in the beginning of our study, all the way back in session one, Brent, we talked about what did we call the narrative? What did we call it? A tale of two kingdoms. Tale of two kingdoms. Which two kingdoms back in session one? Empire and Shalom. Empire and Shalom. I feel like we spent a pretty good amount of time in session one, and I feel like we really spent a lot of time in session two juxtaposing these two kingdoms, talking at length about the dangers of empire and the invitation of Shalom, and just empire and Shalom, empire and Shalom. Which narrative is this? Which narrative is this? All of those kind of things. Um, whether it was their time in the desert, uh, learning how to... Uh, lead with their voice and um, following God's voice, uh, whether it was learning how not to use the stick, whether it was uh, the tension of living in Shfela, uh, the challenge of living with abundance uh, in session two as they built their own like physical empire, uh, we kept seeing an agenda of juxtaposing in the scriptures uh, what we call empire and what God will call shalom, empire and peace. Uh, this narrative makes a prominent appearance in the very beginning of the gospel records as well. There are two birth narratives, direct, at least d- direct birth narratives, one in Matthew, one in Luke. I say that because I always like to say that John has a birth narrative. It just looks different. But two direct birth narratives, one in Matthew and uh, and one in Luke. And both of them set the stage for the life of Jesus uh, in a world of contrast. They do something, they utilize the same tool to do something very, very similar from two slightly different perspectives. And, uh, and of course, Matthew is going to focus on Herod because Herod was in a practical sense, not a literal sense, but in a, in like an economic, a socio-political economic sense, Herod was the king of the Jews. That was Herod the Great. And so we said that Matthew's writing to what kind of an audience? Uh, Jews. Jewish audience. And so Matthew pulls on his context, Jewish context, and he's going to juxtapose Jesus's kingdom with the kingdom of Herod the Great. Um, So how about, uh, let's see here, the Gospel of Matthew draws out a deep background of the rule of Herod the Great. It showcases how paranoid Herod was that a future ruler would even pose a threat to his kingdom. Um, I don't remember. I don't think we've talked much about Herod in session three yet, have we? Is this kind of our introduction to Herod? Uh, I think we maybe briefly mentioned him when we were going through like the timeline of everything, but yeah, Herod, Herod being one of the wealthiest guys who's ever lived. Well, if history is correct at all, if if history is even remotely correct, um, Herod's the richest man to ever walk the face of planet earth. Um, uh, also one of the most paranoid men to probably ever walk the face of the planet. Um, crazy wealthy and just crazy as well. Uh, very, very paranoid individual. But let's actually go ahead and finish off our 
uh, finish off, we're going to look at the rest of chapter two in the gospel of Matthew today. So go ahead and read us that passage so we have some scriptural context to what we're talking about here. When they had gone, uh, that being the Magi, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, 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 Archelaus uh, was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. There you go. And again, more references to more Old Testament prophets. And if we're going to listen to a Jewish author speak to a Jewish audience, we need to go back to those references about Rachel weeping uh, in Ramah and those voices that are being heard. We need to, we need to go back and, and look at those prophecies and say, what does the context of that reference have to add as far as commentary and color to the story that Matthew was telling? So it's in the text. I got to say, Joseph has a whole lot of dreams. He does. Like, my goodness. Here, here comes that, here's Joseph, here comes that dreamer. Exactly. Just like the other Joseph. Yes, and where does he come out of in the story of Matthew? Out of Egypt. Out of Egypt. Like, there is, without a doubt, uh, obviously Matthew trying to point out this parallel, and he's going to be working with that a little bit with his Jewish audience. In fact, he's going to want to show Jesus almost as a new Israel. He's trying to connect Jesus as this to his Jewish audience. This Jesus has connected with us in our story. He's walking our story for us. He's putting Torah on display. He's uh, a very, very good observation. Absolutely. All right. So um, uh, depending on how reliable we find our historical sources, uh, extra biblical as well as biblical, uh, Herod was the richest man to ever walk the face of the planet. If history is correct, uh, wouldn't even be a close second. Bill Gates would mow Herod's lawn. One of my teachers taught me that Herod's income uh, came in at well over a hundred times the national GDP of his country. Now, I'm no economist. I don't know how the math works on that. I don't know. Don't ask me to try to explain that. I'm quoting what was taught to me. But just imagine for a second, Brent, if even a fraction of that is true. If Herod's uh, personal kingdom, his his personal economy that he ran grossed a hundred times the national GDP of his region. Remember, he was the son of who, Brent? Where did all this wealth come from? Uh, the the spice traders from Mijumia. Yeah, Antipater. Okay. Antipater. Antipater, however you like to pronounce that, wherever you put the emphasis on the syllable. Um that is that is his dad from Ijumia Nabatea, and he inherited what 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 did they run, Brent? 
The spice trade. The spice trade. So he inherited this massive, massive business um, and brought all this wealth into. So it's not just the wealth of it, – it's incredibly possible he had 100 times the GDP because it's all coming from that international spice trade, not just the region of Palestine that he rules in. Uh, in Israel, everywhere you go, you can see the impact that Herod had on the world. Brent, you came with me, and really, I'm going to try to do this in a podcast, but really the only way to see this and learn this, I mean, you can speak to this, but you, you need to come with me over to Israel. The scale is difficult to comprehend without standing there. Yeah, and to to see some of the things that you get to see, to, to, to travel to Avdat and talk about Herod's beginnings and to do some of this stuff, it just really helps you understand Herod. But you went to Israel... Um, tell me about like the, the opulence that you saw, uh, compare Herod to s- anything else. Like, tell, tell me what your experience was like. Everything that Herod does is bigger, better, fancier, right? Like, shinier. And like a little, a little bigger? A lot. <laughs> like <laughs> it is incredible. Yeah. The, the stones that he, um, built the temple mount out of. Yes are so massive. Yes. I'll, I'll throw a picture in the um, in the show notes. I might make a little presentation or something. Yeah, but, yeah. But I'll put a picture in there, and I've got a I've got a guy from the trip, not a short guy, no. <laughs> standing next to these stones, and yes. he's just dwarfed by them. Absolutely. They're, they're incredible. Yeah. And and, this, and the picture that you'll have isn't even of the largest one. The largest, one of the largest, uh, um, oh, man, why did I just lose the word that they use? Um for those stones. Anyway, one of the largest stones that they have is actually in a place called the Rabbi Tunnels, which we didn't get to go. I've stood there and put my hands on the stone. 260 metric tons that stone weighs. Uh, like we we literally could not get the cranes into Jerusalem today to move this. We don't have the technology to move the stones. Like so many things that Herod did, he didn't write down because he wanted history to know him as as just pure greatness. So as engineers weren't allowed to record how they did anything because they would do that at the cost of their life. So we don't know today so many of the things that Herod accomplished, um, how he moved the stones that we have theories of how he must have moved the stones of the temple quarried about four, three to four miles away um, in a stone quarry outside of Jerusalem. That's a, that's a long way to pack a stone that weighs 260 metric tons. Um, and we think he did it with rollers. <laughs> like, that's our best option. Um, how did they grow wine at Avdot? We have no idea how they did that. We, we don't even have a good theory right now of how they did that. Uh, that was where um, the Nabataeans, the Nabataeans and Idumeans were, were one of their compounds, one of their uh, cities that they had built was from. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, Herod, uh, Masada. So, talk to me about Masada. It's out in the middle of the desert. It's this sprawling palace, and I think we don't even know that he was ever there, right? We don't have—scholars are now saying that he must have been there. We don't have a reference to him ever being there. We just don't know how much. But scholars are now saying it seems to be that he would have been there. I mean, it, it's crazy that he wouldn't have ever gone there. Right. But yep. it's, it's not like his primary residence or no. anything. He built these three palaces to get away. Uh, he was so paranoid that people would try to kill him that he had this getaway plan with three palaces. It would take him about six to eight days and he could be all the way back in Ijmi and Nabatea and, and out of the country. So massive palace uh, built on this little terraced rock thing way up above the desert. Uh, have to get to it by uh, 
by like a ramp or whatever. Uh huh. Yeah. Or, or no, they built the ramp. How did that work? Uh, well, they no, the ramp was built by the zealots when they overtook Masada. Okay. So how did, you, how did you get to it before trail. they did that? The only way up the Masada was this pathetic, and the, they might have had some other systems that we don't know about. You know, you know, whatever, whether it was other kinds of pulley systems to take other things up. But as far as getting up the mountain, you got up on the snake trail. You know, there's a trail that just snakes up, switchbacks up this mountain. You'll throw a picture of Masada up there. Yep. As well, so people can appreciate that. Um, some 21, 17 to 21 cisterns, I believe. Uh, I think of the 17 largest cisterns of the world that we've ever found. 12 of them are on Masada, if I remember that stat correctly. Um, some ridiculous millions and millions and millions and millions of gallons of water are able to be stored in Masada, largest cistern in the world. All of the greatest luxuries of Hellenism. Absolutely. Uh, just right here out in the middle of the desert on top of this mountain Yep, uh, to be used occasionally right. by Herod. Right. One of Herod's favorite palaces, the Herodium. We'll throw a picture of the Herodium in your presentation, at least one or maybe a, a few pictures of the Herodium. Um, Herod wanted to build a palace on a mountain, but there wasn't a mountain. So Herod just built a mountain. <laughs> he just built a mountain. That's what you do. Yeah. It's, that's what Herod does. Like Herod is, I, I want something, I just do it. Because money's not an issue. I just pay people to do whatever. So he literally built a mountain uh, to build his. And we've got it. We'll show you a picture of that. He built a palace. He built a mountain and then built a palace on and into a mountain. So th th this is Herod. And we're just giving you a flyby, just skipping a stone across the cliff notes of who Herod is here. But Herod was the richest man. To, let's see here. You know, definitely the richest man to walk the planet. Herod desired to be the greatest man who ever lived. Uh, history knows him as Herod the the Great. Herod the Great. My teacher Ray always called him Herod the Wicked. Couldn't stand that history sees him as greatness because it's just Hellenistic greatness. But he he is he greater than Alexander the Great? Ooh, but there, yeah, we're gonna have to put him in the same category, right? Depends on how we're measuring. Depends on how we're measuring. But Herod the Great wanted to be the greatest man who ever lived. He took the, this pursuit seriously and did everything so wildly over the top that to this day, we are not sure how and he how he and his architects did some of the things he did at that point in history. Um, yet the king of the universe wraps himself in flesh and is born in a stable in Bethlehem, which isn't just backwater town of Joseph and his family. Bethlehem also happens to be the location for one of Herod's three great palaces. Guess which one it is? The Herodium. The Herodium. And so uh, one of the phrases that Ray used to always use was, in fact, he even had a video called In the Shadow of the Herodium, a little Christmas special, because Jesus is born almost literally in the shadow of the Herodium. And it, it's in the gospel, you have these two kingdoms juxtaposed. You have Herod the Great on a Hellenistic level, one of the greatest men to ever live on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have God, the creator of the universe, who doesn't choose to be born in a... Like, how does God choose to engage the greatest Hellenistic man that the world maybe has ever seen or however you want to talk about that? How does God going to answer Herod? Like you would imagine with his own palace, with his own kingdom, but he doesn't. He goes right underneath Herod's nose. He's born to a poor peasant family, struggling with rejection, pushed out to the stable, and he's born in the sheep do. Like... That's the juxtaposition of the Christmas story. You can have all the, and what drives me crazy is our American Christmas songs that we sing, the silver and gold and and Jack Frost nipping at your nose and 
and I'm not even going to touch the Santa thing, just the Christmas song. It's all about wealth and comfort, and that's Herod. It's the wrong kingdom. Our Christmas is tied up in the wrong kingdom. Because when God came, he wrapped himself in flesh, and he was born in a sheep stall. To steal a phrase from my teacher, uh, Ray, the subversive nature of God's plan is that he will send his son to be born in the shadow of the palace of the greatest man to walk on Roman soil. There are two kingdoms that are being put on display in Matthew's gospel. One king is the richest man to ever live. He constructs incredible buildings that stagger the mind and accomplishes incredible feats of human engineering. His ingenuity and wealth are second to none. He builds mountains where there aren't any, pipes in water to places that could never previously be reached, and corners the market on beauty and innovation. He is the most powerful human being the world has ever seen. His life is decorated with silver, gold, and the richest affair. And another king is born to a poverty-stricken, rejected family from the rural town of Nazareth. He is born in sheep crap, surrounded by the ash of shepherd's fires and the feces of cattle. His birth is announced to the marginalized of society, and his advent is celebrated by shepherds. One king is the leader of empire. The other is the king of Shalom. And we could do the same thing, by the way, Brent, before we're done here with Luke's gospel, because Luke will do the same, he'll employ the same tool. You have, uh, you have the opening chapter to the, or the opening verse to the second chapter of Luke, don't you? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That's right. In those days, Caesar Augustus. In those five words, Luke says more than we probably realize. These words are chosen deliberately by Luke. Luke is trying to set his own stage for his own narrative about the tale of two kingdoms. His version of the Christmas story puts us in the juxtaposition between two other kings. This king thought himself to be God incarnate, the son of an ascended Julius Caesar Augustus, claimed, or excuse me, the son of an ascended Julius Caesar. Augustus claimed that a mighty star in the sky, apparently seen by many, I believe it's called Caesar's Comet. I think it's on Wikipedia. If you can find an article, you can link it to the show notes, Brent. Um, It was known today as Caesar's Comet. He said, this was Octavian at the time. He wasn't known as Augustus at that moment. There was a battle for the throne between Mark Antony after the assassination of Julius Caesar. There's a battle for the throne between Mark Antony and Octavian. Mark Antony has all the practical reason to be ruler. Octavian is Julius's adopted nephew who because of his adoption as Julius's legal son, and there's a battle for the throne. Mark Antony has all the power, but Octavian has all the political wit. Because of that, Octavian seizes on this, again, we got astrology at work here, this unbelievable star, uh, Caesar's comet that apparently was seen by almost everybody in the empire. It was common news. Almost everybody had seen it. And because of that, Octavian seizes on this opportunity. And he says that that comet was actually his father, Julius, Julius Caesar, ascending to his rightful throne as God. If Julius was God, then that would make me, Augustus says, Octavian said, the son of God. From this point in Roman history, emperors would, and without exception, claim incarnate deity among their many attributes. They did not do that very heavily in Rome, by the way. It wasn't a very popular position to do in Rome. Rome saw their position as very human. They didn't want to connect it with deity. But especially throughout the world of Asia and Asia Minor, as well as other areas of what we would call Greece, uh, deity worship, emperor worship as deity was very, very common. 
and almost almost every emperor had it. It was just the the most effective way to uh, do your PR in their world. So Augustus ended up being exclaimed by Roman propaganda, and you might remember Brent. It was just uh, uh, a few podcasts ago when we talked about gospel narrative. We actually read a plaque from Priene, which announced a gospel of Caesar Augustus, this very same Caesar. Um, and so it's it's propaganda like that that claimed that Augustus was, and we have this on currency, we have this on other pieces of literature, uh, uh, other stuff that we've found, plaques, those kind of things, uh, different references to Augustus as the son of the Most High, the eternal prince of peace, the king of kings, the Lord of Lords. These were uh, references that were used by Caesar Augustus. It was often proclaimed that there was no other name under heaven which a man could be saved from terror except that of Caesar Augustus. And yet in a stable is born a baby who Luke claims to be the true King of Kings, the true Lord of Lords, the true Prince of Peace, and the Son of the Most High God. One king plays the part well, the other king challenges everything we expect of the ruler of the universe. It's a tale of two kingdoms, and we are being invited in the gospel to consider our deepest assumptions about the world. What is real power? What is real wealth? Where does security come from? Who is God? What is God trying to save me from? What do I really want and what do I strive for? Empire or shalom? Would I even have noticed the king of the universe born in a stable or would I simply have been looking for a better Caesar? And I don't like that question because it's super, super convicting. Uh, I don't think I would have seen Jesus for who he was. I think I would have been looking for a more powerful ruler, a better president, a more effective politician, uh, we have a tendency to look for Caesars. We have a tendency to look for kings. We don't have a tendency to look for gods born in sheep stables that have come to announce. And, and, and we just haven't moved on on some level. In, in one way, we've moved on a bunch. But in another way, we haven't moved on from where we started. This is still the same narrative, a tale of two kingdoms. Do I have a narrative that's driven by fear? Do I have a narrative that's driven by power? Do I have a narrative that's driven by force? Or do I have a narrative that's driven by invitation to a better way? Not of self-preservation. That's Caesar. That's Herod. Herod was all bent on self-preservation. Do I have a narrative built on self-sacrifice? That's what God has come to do, to be born in the sheep crap, to say, this is how much I love you. This is that is a completely different narrative than the narrative of empire. Hasn't changed. Three sessions in, Brent hasn't changed. Ah, uh, yes, the tale of two kingdoms, the gospel of two kingdoms. There you go. Uh, all right. Well, uh, get in a discussion group, wrestle through this, talk about it. Uh, all sorts of questions that I'm I'm sure we're bringing up. Um, so. So work through it. Get in touch with us if you need to. Marty's on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I bet EIBCB. Uh, go to BamonEstablishment.com. You can find discussion groups. You can get in touch with us. Uh, you can do all the things you need to do. Thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.